Hi everyone, and welcome again to the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. Uh, a lot has happened since the last time I created an episode, including uh, doing a whole uh, new podcast series with the Society of Behavioral Medicine called The Buzz in Behavioral Medicine, which is a lot of fun. I basically geeked out and chatted with colleagues of mine about um, you know whatever they were up to within the society. Uh, so if you're interested in Society of Behavioral Medicine, I really suggest you check that one out. Um, I may post some of those episodes here at some point, but uh, at this point they're just housed over there and, and living a nice life as uh, under the buzz in behavioral medicine. Um, we're back, it's summer, so I'm going to follow my tradition of creating anonymous question podcasts. And I have a series of questions here from students. And this is the first round, I'll probably do at least two rounds of this. Um, and I have anonymous questions from my students in my summer abnormal psychology class. And this, this is a great way for me to kind of interact with them a little bit since this is an online class, it's a little hard to get interaction going. But here at least they can you know, see me do something live instead of some of my older recorded lectures. So if you're in my class, welcome. I hope you enjoy this podcast and I hope you get your questions answered. If not, of course, email me and I will answer them as best I can. Um, so just so you know, I do tend to do these blind. If I have to go look stuff up, I'll tell you. Um, I do tend to do them blind, though. Um, I want people to get my kind of, you know, off-the-cuff, unprepared, unresearched answer just based on my knowledge um, and based on my, you know, kind of very honest, open impressions of the answers to their questions. And I love doing these anonymous questions because there's so much that people don't know about mental health and might be afraid to ask. And so having people ask these questions in an anonymous fashion is kind of the, my favorite way. So here is the first one. If someone has bad anxiety, what are some of the things that have been proven to help reduce it? Now keep in mind, these are early questions for my class. So I don't think we, they've, they've had the anxiety disorders chapter yet. Um, otherwise then uh, folks probably already know this answer, but for everyone listening, uh, exposure is the thing that helps reduce anxiety. Anxiety is, is, is an anticipatory fear response. We're worried about what's going to happen in the future. Um, and then the regular fear response is the fear response we have in the moment that causes us to want to escape whatever we're experiencing. So anxiety is all about avoidance. It's all about staying away from the scary thing, whatever that may be. If it's social situations, if it's spiders, if it's memories of a past trauma, all of those things are things that we are afraid of. And our brain is trying to protect us by telling us to stay the heck away. Um, and this is, you know, imagine our ancestors. This was probably something that was pretty adaptive, right? If there's a scary place, a place where we've been attacked before, a place where <laughs> something scary has happened, um, or a situation that was bad for us, perhaps with another tribe member or whatever, depending on what <laughs> place in our evolution we're looking at, um, it was good to learn very quickly to stay the heck away to preserve our safety. Now, our brain still has all of those same fear responses to things that are we kind of have to do, right? To exams, to talking with friends, talking with romantic partners, going to new places, doing new things, um, things in certain places like spiders or cockroaches or other scary, creepy, crawly things. Um, all of those things can produce anxiety. When they get to a certain severity that they really impair our life, they're an anxiety disorder, and we usually have some kind of diagnosis associated with that and a very specific treatment for it. <clears throat> but in general, the things that have helped to reduce anxiety are exposure. So slowly, and we're not talking about like torturing ourselves here, but slowly getting accustomed to the things that scare us. So if we're afraid of social situations, of interacting with new people, then maybe we pick a few kind of safe situations where we can start to, in a comfortable situation, talk with new people. And then we push ourselves more and more to meet new people. And we start to realize the bad stuff that my brain is telling me that is going to happen isn't necessarily happening all that often, or maybe not happening at all. And then that replaces that old learning of fear and avoidance with new learning of, you know, I'm nervous about this, but it's not that bad. And it tends to be worth the risk and it tends to be worth doing. Um, <clears throat> I used animals like spiders and snakes as examples. Our brains are a little, um, you know, pre-wired to be afraid of creepy crawly things as opposed to, you know, you don't hear people developing phobias of, you know, mice or like your computer mouse or doorknobs and stuff like that. Um, it's usually creepy crawly things. Um, so, 
If someone is afraid of going to a place where there might be creepy crawly things, the thing to do is get exposure to the creepy crawly thing. Maybe you go to a reptile exhibit or a spider exhibit or watch spider videos online until you start to kind of feel like, okay, I can watch this without being too stressed out. And then you move up the hierarchy, you do more difficult things. I mean, if you want, you can just go to the place where you're afraid of seeing spiders or snakes and just hang out there for a while until the anxiety goes away. That works too. But most people like to kind of build up to that through smaller ways. So the answer is exposure. It's experience. It's pushing yourself. But the important thing is that you have to become accustomed to it. If you just go and expose yourself to a scary thing and be around the scary thing until it's so scary you have to run away, all you've taught your brain is, I run away from scary things. You have to teach your brain, hanging around the scary thing isn't that bad. I can tolerate it, and the fear goes away, and then I can learn to appreciate some of the things that I've been missing out on. So you have to stick around if you're going to do it. If you go in and run away, it's only going to make things worse. That's the tricky little bit when it comes to anxiety and exposure and how that's helpful. Now, that's kind of an oversimplification of, of a gigantic area of psychological research and treatment. Um, but that's the short answer. It's exposure. All right, next question. Mental health issues are on the rise in this country. True statement, especially in our public schools. Also a true statement. Um, any school, really. What are your thoughts for younger students being on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications? I work with students with behavioral issues. The majority of these students suffer from depression or anxiety. Well, let me give the disclaimer that I am a psychologist and I cannot prescribe. Um, so, you know, of course, the tools I have at my disposal are all mental and behavioral health treatments, which are highly effective um, and in many cases more effective than medications uh, when they discontinue. Because, um, of course, medications stop working when people stop taking them. Um, but therapy provides skills that people can use whether they're actively in therapy or not. Good therapy does. Um, good, you know, behavioral or cognitive behavioral therapy does. The ones that have the most empirical support and science behind them. So my preference is for people to engage in therapy because they're, you're not going to have side effects and things like that that you may have with antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Um, but by and large, there's not a whole ton of evidence, at least that I'm aware of, that it causes um, catastrophic problems for kids to be on these when they're younger, when their brains are still developing. Obviously, we'd prefer that not to be the case, but I'm not aware of a lot of research that shows very negative effects for kids to be on um, antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. Now, I just talked about exposure. That's a very effective anti-anxiety tool um, and, and, and anti-anxiety therapy. That's very effective for kids as well as adults. Um, same with depression. There are many treatments that are effective for children. Um, that are based in the same science that we use for adults. Um, so I think that those kind of treatments are very helpful. Um, part of the challenge is that for kids, the home environment matters uh, a lot, obviously. Um, the stressors that their parents are under and how much they're able to provide and engage with their kids in helping them with whatever depression and feelings of depression and anxiety that they're having. Um, so the parents' bandwidth matters a lot. Um, and so really, I'm not a child therapist. I don't work with children much at all. Um, and it's much more complicated than adults. Uh, and because when you're working with kids, you're working with a whole family by default. Um, because there's that whole home environment that, that generally needs to have some work done. And that can be a great benefit um, with getting parents on board in students' mental health. And it can be extremely helpful to have the same messages they're getting in therapy at home. Um, but sometimes it's in the opposite direction where the um, home life may be chaotic or parents may have to work, you know, two jobs each if there's two parents or two jobs, three jobs each if there's one parent. And that doesn't allow as much time for parenting, right? Um, and so, you know, that's just what people have to do to survive. So I'm not blaming anyone for that situation. But that makes it harder for kids with depression and anxiety issues to get by um, and to improve. Um, so, you know, I, I think that antidepressants, um, especially are a useful tool, but they're only one tool in the toolbox. And there are many others that folks should have uh, exposure to um, and be able to use uh, if they are suffering from depression or anxiety, especially kids. Now, the reality is that, you know, we're an under-resourced population. Schools are under-resourced, especially. And so they don't always have access to a school psychologist or a school psychologist that does therapy because some of them are more 
working on case management and environment and some other things um, and not necessarily engaged in therapy. So a lot of students, a lot of kids do not have access to all the things that they need and probably the thing they can get easiest access to are things like antidepressant medications. And, um, and the same ones are usually used to treat anxiety as well. Um, and that's kind of the best that they can get. Um, it's not really great, especially by itself, but it's the best that they can get when what they need is kind of comprehensive care. So I'm not against it, but I think it's one tool in the toolbox and we need to do better and we're not doing very well, especially with the increase in mental health challenges around the pandemic and everything like that. I mean, we see that in every type of school, even at ECU in our college, um, in our university, excuse me, uh, the, the amount of need for mental health care has has grown a lot and there's a lot of reasons for that some of it is additional mental health challenges some of it is that we've destigmatized it in in this um generation to an extent so people are willing to talk about it and willing to seek treatment more which is wonderful but i don't think our capacity has risen <laughs> um, at ecu and at many other universities to meet that demand which is unfortunate so again Antidepressants, not a terrible thing, but they're one tool in the toolbox, and most people would benefit from um, multiple ways of working on the problem that they're having, especially when it's depression or anxiety. All right, next question. I know some mental disorders signs may not arise until middle school, high school, or even later. Of course, depending on the scenario and disorder, there's a wide variance. What is the earliest age you have either personally or heard of um, a mental disorder being diagnosed? Um, great question. I have to say, I do not know the answer. <laughs> um, you can diagnose mental health disorders in children. There have been reports of uh, young children. I can't remember the exact ages, but you know, a, a few years old uh, attempting suicide and um, and things like that. So we know we have mental health issues in young people. Um, what's interesting is that the uh, symptoms tend to look a little bit different. You know, for people who are experiencing depression, they're trying to get where they want to go in life and they're stopped for some reason, like the environment is not cooperating with them. And they have a response where they kind of feel stuck and want to quit and just don't feel like life is, you know, worth putting the effort into because they're not getting what they want out of it. Um, you know, kids have their environment controlled a little bit more, so their symptoms may look a little bit different. They may be irritable and obstinate and withdrawn. Um, and, and not necessarily say they're depressed or sad, but you know, they, they don't always have the way to express their feelings um, and that full repertoire in the way that adults do. Um, so you, you can have children diagnosed with many uh, different mental health disorders that um, also um, adults would. Now there are some that are you know, very um, biological in origin, like schizophrenia, like bipolar disorder, um, that don't tend to arise until later in life. So you're talking more about the early 20s, for example, into, into mid-20s when you might see schizophrenia start to develop. So usually in that like 25 to 35 window, I think, if I remember correctly, but somewhere around in there, it's different in various studies about when that window is. So you're not going to really see schizophrenia diagnosed in kids, at least it shouldn't be. And it's the same with bipolar disorder. That tends to develop, um, you start to see signs of it kind of in adolescence and maybe older than that. Um, again, I can't remember the exact things off the top of my head. See my lectures um, if you want the answer. Uh, but so it really shouldn't be diagnosed in children. It's extremely rare to happen in children, although it is diagnosed rather frequently in children because I guess people just don't, don't make accurate diagnoses, basically. Um, and so, you know, things can be diagnosed in kids. I don't know what the earliest ever has been, but it can be quite early for some disorders and probably shouldn't be too early for others when we know they have a, a, a more discrete developmental period when they tend to come about. Great question. Sorry, I don't have the, the perfect answer. Next question. Are certain common mental illnesses such, in depression, such as depression and anxiety genetic? Additionally, are suicidal thoughts and tendencies linked to a genetic predisposition or rather just happen by chance? Well, this comes back to that nature versus nurture, even though that's an oversimplification of this question and the question in general. Um, and the answer is it's complicated and it depends, which is the answer to most things within psychology and mental health. It always kind of depends. Um, depression and anxiety disorders, which are their various uh, ones of those, um, do have a genetic influence, but it's small compared to the overall um, 
probability, the overall influence. So there, there's a genetic influence to most things or a heritability to most things, um, to most mental health issues. But depression and anxiety are very low on the heritability range as opposed to like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder are, are a bit more heritable. Um, still not a high heritability, like not like a 90% or something like that. More like 50 is like the highest, 50% is like the highest heritability. So a 50% greater risk for a mental health issue if someone has it. But that's with things like um, schizophrenia under certain conditions and certain ex uh, experiences uh, and things like that. So things that have a very biological um, and develop developmental cause. Uh, so um, with depression, anxiety, it's it's small. And you have to take into account too, not only the heritability because of genetics, but the heritability that, uh, so to speak, that occurs because of observing family members. Like if you see people respond with anxiety, you see them avoid a lot of stuff, you see them being fearful. We learn that as kids, we learn to be fearful of things. Um, so there's some of it that's a predisposition, right? We might be more likely to develop, to develop it based on our unique brain wiring. Um, but we also may be more likely to develop because we've seen uh, we've been provided with examples of this is how you deal with things. You avoid them. <laughs> you, when you're feeling sad, you just like quit for a while. Um, those are the kind of things that teach us that but put us in a pattern that may make us more likely to experience a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder later in life. Um, suicidal thoughts and tendencies, kind of same kind of thing. Um, I, I'm not aware of much research that shows that there's a high heritability there or even that, that, that researches the heritability. Um, but, you know, when people observe others expressing suicidal thoughts or notice that others in their sphere, like a peer um, or a celebrity they admire or something like that, um, attempts suicide or dies by suicide, um, there's often, people often... Um, or not often, I guess, but then people recognize that that is an option and so may entertain that option when they are similarly feeling down, stuck, defeated, um, etc. So I would, the, the challenge there is more of a social nature, I think, than a genetic nature when it comes to um, suicidal thoughts and, and things along those lines. And suicidal thoughts are actually rather common. People who are feeling down may think of, you know, I wish life, my life was over. I wish this, you know, and that sort of thing. That's not necessarily uncommon. It's a symptom of distress and not necessarily something that means they're going to follow through. Although it's worthy of attention to make sure that folks that are thinking that way don't follow through. But it's not uncommon. What is more, what is less common is when they start to think about, oh, here's how I might do it. And I'm planning to do it and basically needing someone to stop them. Um, in order to keep it from happening. And we're actually pretty good at stopping people from hurting themselves, um, but only when they connect with someone who can help. So with a crisis counselor or suicide counselor or something like that. Um, and there are lots of crisis hotlines in, in Greenville here. We have the Real Crisis Center. Um, there's the National Suicide Hotline, which if you Google it, it'll pop right up. We're working on getting a suicide hotline that's just... Uh, three numbers and those numbers will be 988. So similar to 911 for emergencies, um, the National Suicide Lifeline, uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the number will be 988. And it's starting on July 16th, 2022 is the estimate. It's available in some areas right now, probably not ours, um, but 988. So currently you can call 1-800-273-8255. But 988 is a lot easier to remember. So looking forward to the implementation of that here in the coming month. Okay, so I paused there to go get you the right number. I don't think that's active yet, but it will be. And so that'll be our mental health 911, basically. Um, anyway, so um, that's the that, there are ways to interrupt kind of this, this slide from, you know, thinking that life isn't worth living to thinking about hurting oneself. And, and for so on and so forth to creating a plan and knowing how to do it and then executing that plan. Um, there are ways to intervene on that. So as a side note, that wasn't really in the question, but it's something I feel like it's important to talk a little bit about. All right, next question. If a woman takes antidepressants for an extended period of time, at least five years or more, and then decides she would like to have a baby, would the consistent intake of prescription antidepressants affect her pregnancy at all? Will the baby be born and have a harder time or even be unable to produce certain chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, endorphins, or oxytocin? Basically asking if a woman should stop taking her antidepressant and anxiety medication if she becomes pregnant. 
Will the prescription affect pregnancy at all? This is probably a more complicated question than it seems like on the surface. Again, not a prescriber, don't know intimately all of the research on um, antidepressant medication. Um, but really, all of, almost every study on antidepressant medication that is a randomized trial and really looking at a placebo versus a, a real medication don't last five years. So we don't really know the long-term effects of some of these other than looking at observational studies where we can kind of pull a, uh, information from a population and kind of see if stuff seems to be associated. But, you know, our, our best science doesn't go five years out. So that causes a challenge here. Um, I know that psychiatrists can attentively regulate someone's antidepressant medication to make sure that it does not harm um, the, uh, the fetus. So I'm pretty sure that um, antidepressant medications can be taken during pregnancy pretty safely. Um, at the same time, most people want to avoid things that may interfere with the, the development of a child. And so um, a lot of people, if they're planning to become pregnant, may try to get off of their medications. And honestly, the best way to do that is to get into therapy um, and then work with a therapist and a psychiatrist or whomever the prescriber is to reduce those medications per the prescriber's recommendation. Never stop medication without a prescriber's like recommendation because most of these need to be titrated down. They can't just be stopped because um, you'll have a lot of negative side effects, both in a mental health sense and, and sometimes in a physical sense, uh, purely physical sense. So not a good idea. Um, and that way, you know, if someone's planning to become pregnant, so they've got some, they, they've got time to figure this out, um, they might get into therapy and have that support and learn skills to reduce the medication to where they won't need it. So they'll have the skills and they may stay in therapy through part of their pregnancy or come in periodically to kind of make sure that they're, you know, feeling okay and doing okay. Um, I would be more worried when it comes to depression, depression affects healthcare. Um, how well we care for ourselves. People with depression tend to have poorer health for various reasons. There's, there's inflammation, there's you know some platelet stuff. There's a bunch of different things that are going on. But one of the big things is that they don't take as good care of themselves. Imagine if you're feeling depressed, you're not exactly eating healthy, exercising, all those things that you need to be doing. And there's a lot of self-care that goes into being pregnant, right? Um, and so people experiencing depression through that may not take care of themselves and well, and, and, and therefore may not take care of their child as well. There's also a risk for postpartum depression. So pregnancy after the birth, um, it, that is higher amongst folks who are prone to depression. There's higher risk for that. So getting into therapy, gaining some skills, learning how to cope with and, and, and alleviate depression without medication um, can be helpful for someone who wants to be off of medication through pregnancy, but they can stay on it through pregnancy as well. Um, I would still recommend some treatment there just because knowing that you know pregnancy is can be a wonderful thing, but also it's also a major stressor to the body and, and, to, and behaviorally. You know, it's something you always have to be attentive to. It changes your life in a lot of ways. And then of course, once you have a child, it changes your life in a lot more ways, um, especially if it's your first. So uh, I would think that getting into therapy and gaining skills, um, both cognitively and behaviorally, in order to, to cope with emotional distress is going to be very helpful for someone. So, uh, you know, I'm always a recommender of therapy. I know it's hard to get it and it can be expensive and all our, <laughs> all our therapy clinics are filled up right now. But I, I still think, I, you know, I still highly recommend seeking that. Um, but I know that psychiatrists can manage antidepressant medications through pregnancy uh, as well. So... You know, it, it could. I would recommend um, both or primarily therapy. Uh, definitely, uh, if someone's experiencing those kind of things and, and wants to become pregnant. Um, if someone, um, in an unplanned way, becomes pregnant and can't go through these kind of lead-up steps, um, you know, that goes by the recommendation of the of the um, of the pediatrician and the OBG. Um, on, you know, should these medications be changed or stopped or something like that. And if there's going to be changing or stopping of medication, um, then I would recommend having a therapist on board as well to, again, help with skills um, surrounding that change in medication, which will probably result in at least some degree of, of change in, in mood and things like that as the, as the medications alter and the body adjusts to that.
Good question. Lots of questions about antidepressants this time. I, 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 those are challenging for me, but I like those. I think they're very good questions. Next question. Does the affects from parental mother or father abandonment shape the way a person shows empathy? Uh, again, not aware of the specific research on this, but it's certainly possible. So um, we tend to learn how to relate to others when we're very young by observing how other people relate to each other and relate to us. So if someone sees uh, their parents more um, abandoning them or being like less caring and less emotionally invested, um, that may change the way that a person you know, shows their empathy and care and love to other people. Now, nothing that happens in our childhood is uh, set in, in stone, set in concrete that we can't change that. Um, but the challenge in this situation where we have a parental abandonment um, and how does that affect empathy, um, it, 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 it may t it'll take some effort to change that. But the reason, you know, humans have a little bit of a predisposition toward empathy. You know, we tend to do that. And if it's reinforced, great. If it's punished, then we kind of stop doing it um, in certain situations. But we, we have that ability to do that. Um, so if a person who's experienced abandonment can try doing that and they get good responses for it, like people respond well to it, it gets them empathy back that they may be seeking and missing. Um, then it, it'll take off on its own, right? It's, it's, a, it's a social contingency. It's a, it's a social exchange that um, grows itself. It's like being nice to people. If you're being nice to people, often they are nice back to you if you're around the right people. Um, and so that makes being nice feel good because we get nice back and we create a wonderful, beautiful environment and friendships for ourselves by being, by being in that kind of environment. So when someone experiences that, then their expression of empathy may increase and the ways that they show it, the varying ways that they show it um, may increase. Uh, and so, you know, yes, that can affect the way someone shows empathy, but that's not a, a, a sentence to only being able to show empathy that way. All behavior can be changed. Some of it's more stubborn than others, but most behavior, all or most behavior can be changed with enough effort and the right environment and the right contingencies. Yeah, I'm a behavioral psychologist if you haven't figured that out. Um, so that's why I say that. Um, but again, it, the other thing about this situation um, is the person may not realize that they're not showing empathy, may not realize that that's an option. So they would have to be around people or in situations or in therapy where they're learning skills um, to help them recognize, oh, okay, yeah, other people do this differently. And maybe I can try that a little bit and see what works for me. Neat question. Next question. Oh man, there's this is a four-part question. All right, someone was really into this. Excellent. Uh, do you believe that society's interpretations of the causes of mental health disorders has changed between Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z? Um, you know, I, I I don't like to ascribe like personality characteristics or behaviors based on generation. Um, so I don't think like I was born in 1980, which is like the end of generation x in the beginning of millennials so i i don't necessarily like like what happens for people like me who are on the cusp right like in between these two do we have traits from both do we have no traits are we our own thing is there a is there a zennial a gen x millennial that is different it's all just kind of like almost horoscopy that we <laughs> are prescribing these behaviors to the different generations but i think it's a interesting way to discuss things in terms of um, like on the on the national stage, like talking about how things have changed over various generations. Um, and I think that, you know, we've gone through the era of the brain where we blamed everything on the brain. We've gone through like um, where we blame parents for everything. We've gone through periods where we blame, you know, it's, it's every, it's, there's some oversimplified thing that gets the blame. Um, I think what has changed in terms of interpretation and causes of mental disorders is that people are more open to understanding the various causes as, as we've gone through time. And this is more to do with how the mental health disciplines have grown as fields and our research has gotten stronger. And we've gotten better outreach where we're actually getting some of that research out into the public sphere. We're still absolutely terrible at that, <laughs> about getting our science out into the public. Um, but we're getting better, which is not still not great, but slightly better. 
Um, and a lot of that is due to things like podcasts and blogs, and but there's that also allowed a lot more misinformation to get out there. So it could be a full-time job debunking misinformation without ever getting any of the really good information actually out there, which is a whole other discussion. But I think that over time, people have been more accepting of the variety of causes for mental health challenges. So it's not just biology. It's not just our brain. It's not just genetics. Genetics. It's an interaction between our biological, psychological, and social factors. So our biological factors, you know, what we come to the table with, um, and also what happens to us throughout our lives in a biological way. Um, psychological factors like reinforcement, punishment, our ways of thinking, all those things that we've developed over time that we, you know, know from psychological research. And social factors, which have gotten a lot more attention as they are due. Uh, in the past several decades. And I think this is a big one, that people are recognizing that things like systemic racism uh, and other factors that systematically disadvantage certain groups. Um, and, you know, I'm, when I say, you know, certain groups, I mean minority broadly defined. Um, you know, any, any person or group that is disadvantaged and doesn't have the same rights as other groups, um, be that either written down in law or how it affects it functionally. Like, for example, in the workplace, uh, women uh, receive lower pay and are passed over for promotions more often and things like that. All of those things affect mental health. Um, and so I think that, you know, as I talk about this out loud, I think that's the thing that's probably changed the most um, over the last several decades is that we've We've given the attention that is, we've always known about this, we've always known about this, but we've given more attention, the attention that is due to these social factors that are influencing our mental health and mental well-being of um, people in, uh, in our society and, and across, across the world. So I'd say if I had to pick one, I'd say that's the thing that has changed the most is it, in the public sphere, we're more acknowledging of these social factors um, and systemic bias in our systems that are influencing mental health. Okay, part two of the four-part question. Have mental disorders become more prominent and common in our society as therapy and treatment has improved? Um, I don't think they've ever, they've become more prominent. Most of our data are pretty consistent over time in terms of the proportion of the population that experiences various mental health disorders. So six to 10% of individuals in any given year are experiencing major depressive disorder. That's, that's been pretty consistent through most studies over time. Um, and, you know, therapy and treatment has improved, um, but mental health disorders have pretty much uh, remained the same over time. Um, the next question here is, do you believe there are any disorders that are overly diagnosed? And yes, there are. So some prevalence has increased with more diagnosis um, and more awareness, but that doesn't necessarily mean the true prevalence of the disorder has changed that much. Just that people become more aware of it and start to diagnose it more. When you look at, um, for example, uh, a chart review where I can, you know, you get approval from a research board to look at the uh, medical charts of thousands and thousands of people, you see an increase in certain diagnoses um, based on basically what ones are trendy and people know about more at the time. <laughs> um, if you do a scientific study where you actually measure people's mental health, um, do um, kind of the gold standard ways of measuring if someone has a diagnosis, uh, then the patterns seem to be more consistent over time. So um, I believe there are certain ones that are overdiagnosed. I think that there is no disorder called anxiety. There is no anxiety disorder or disorder of anxiety. There are specific disorders that are under the umbrella of anxiety disorders, like um, uh, the specific phobias like social anxiety disorder, for example, like generalized anxiety disorder, for example, those are ones that are under that umbrella. So people say I have anxiety and uh, my anxiety this and my anxiety that. Um, that's not actually a diagnosis. Um, so I think that this diagnosis that doesn't exist that people say they have is, is, a, is overly diagnosed. Um, I also think that generalized anxiety disorder is overly diagnosed. Uh, the folks that create the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that we use to do these diagnoses are aware that that's a really crappy diagnosis. There's like a 50% concordance rate. So if I interview someone and then one of my colleagues interviews someone, there's only a 50% chance that we would both diagnose them correctly, <laughs> either having or not having generalized anxiety disorder. It's a bad diagnosis. Um, 
but it's it's about chronic worry and that's what people don't necessarily understand is about chronic and debilitating worry that the person can't escape from um, but we like to have something to diagnose everybody with and so people that don't necessarily meet criteria for generalized anxiety disorder often get a diagnosis because basically people can't figure out anything else to diagnose them with so it becomes a catch-all diagnosis which is not is what it is intended to do I think bipolar disorder is overly diagnosed. Um, that's a really difficult one to diagnose accurately because someone has to have manic episodes um, and often, depending on if it's bipolar one or two, they have to have manic episodes and often they'll have depressive episodes as well. But I think people just, uh, providers just kind of ask people, do you feel sad sometimes? Do you feel happy sometimes? Oh, that sounds like bipolar. Um, and they get the diagnosis when it's really not accurate. And it's really important to diagnose it accurately because the prognosis is different, the treatment is different. People who truly have bipolar disorder need to be on some kind of medication in order to help regulate um, the manic and depressive episodes. Uh, and if, it, if they're not on that, it can be pretty difficult. And some people, the medications are not effective, but, but if they're not on that, it can be difficult to manage those things. Um, and the treatment is very different. Um, you know, the, treating the depressive episodes themselves can be similar to treating depression, uh, major depression, but generally the treatments are different. It's more about medication management, about, you know, keeping a, a, a strong schedule in terms of sleep and, and, and self-care and that sort of thing. So anyway, I won't get into all the details, but it's important to diagnose that one accurately. And I think it's overly diagnosed um, and that's to people's detriment. Last question. From a clinical standpoint, do you believe that those who give the best treatment are those who have acquired uh, psychological treatment themselves? That is, are the best psychologists the ones who have spent time on the other side of the couch? Uh, my answer is no. I think this is an old, uh, coming from an old school approach to psychotherapy, more in the psychodynamic aspect, um, where everyone needs to go through psychoanalysis in order to be better able to psychoanalyze other people. I don't think that's true. Um, that, that's, that's, again, that is not a very empirically supported approach to treatment. The behavioral and cognitive behavioral treatments are the ones that have the most science behind them. And lots of people can learn to do those. Even non-psychologists can learn to do very specific cognitive behavioral treatments for a very specific group of people. Psychologists can basically treat anybody with the skills that they've learned. Um, but these skills are, are broadly applicable and broadly trainable. Um, and, you know, people need supervision and, and continued support if they're doing psychological treatments and they're not a psychologist um, or other type of mental health care provider that's trained this way. But it's possible. So I don't think that we need to do it, uh, need to be in therapy with someone in order to do that. And part of that reason is um, psychoanalysis kind of says that everyone has problems. Everyone needs psychoanalysis. Um, and if you don't have problems, you haven't uncovered them yet. Uh, and I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, some people have severe mental health problems. Some people don't. Some people engage in uh, a lifestyle and skills that help them to avoid mental health issues. And some people have either a predisposition or other challenges that they've experienced in their life that make it harder for them to do that. And they need treatment. Um, and so, you know, I don't think you need a diagnosis to benefit from treatment, but I do think you need problems that you're trying to work on that are of a level that would require a psychologist to intervene. One caveat to that, we do need to take care of ourselves to be good therapists. So we do need to be able to take care of our, we don't have to be, no one, none of us have perfect mental health. I can attest to that personally. None of us have perfect mental health, but we do need to have ways to keep our mental health strong enough that we can care for the mental health of others. Otherwise we start to screw up. We start to get, we start to make mistakes basically. Um, and we start to, uh, run out of empathy, so to speak, to where we're not helping people as well as we could. So we do need to take care of ourselves. And sometimes that means that we need to get therapy ourselves. Uh, most of the time, I think it means we need to employ all these wonderful therapy skills that we've learned to ourselves. It's one of the principles of self-care that I teach to my students is use your science. Use your science. We have a science of that in, that teaches us how to improve mental health, and we should be using it on ourselves. We are not exempt. We are not some kind of special human that has magically good mental health. We need to work on our mental health in the same way that our patients do, though hopefully not to the same extreme. We're not, hopefully we're not experiencing the same level of distress as our patients, but we need to use the same skills and apply them to ourselves 
um, in order to keep ourselves healthy so we can take care of other people's mental health. And, and so, so no, we don't necessarily need therapy, but yes, we need to take care of our mental health in order to be a good psychologist, a good mental health, be it a social worker or a licensed clinical, you know, whatever type of mental health care provider, psychologist included. Um, we need to take care of ourselves in order to be good therapists. Next question, how likely is it that an individual diagnosed with bipolar 2 will pass it on to their children? Well, I think I addressed this one before. Um, you know, bipolar 2 is uh, a little different than bipolar 1. Bipolar 1 is what you typically think of when you think of bipolar disorder. Bipolar 2, uh, the manic side of things is much lower. Um, so it might be like a, um, a, you know, periods of high energy, but not the delusions, not the... Um, you know, they might need less sleep and be real productive, but they don't tend to do the things that are as problematic, like engage in a lot of risky sex or clear out their retirement account for some kind of business venture they thought up when they couldn't sleep last night. That's more bipolar one with a full manic episode. It lasts longer. It's more, it lasts at least seven days instead of lasting only two or three to four days like in bipolar two. So this doesn't necessarily pass on in the same sense genetically um, that like, you know, uh, Huntington's disease does or something like that, you know, that has a, a biological issue. And this doesn't necessarily pass on that way. You know, individuals whose parents have uh, either of the bipolar disorders are at a higher risk for bipolar disorder themselves, um, but it's not a high likelihood that that will happen. You know, my advice, if I, if I had uh, a bipolar uh, disorder in my family, like a parent with bipolar disorder um, or a parent with schizophrenia, I would be kind of more attentive to my mental health. I'd make sure that I'm taking care of myself. You know, I kind of keep an eye on, on my thoughts and feelings. I might you know, like go into therapy when I was feeling a little off and just to kind of check myself, learn some skills to prevent problems in the future. But I wouldn't be too paranoid that I was going to get bipolar disorder um, because it's not just that predisposition. So you have a higher predisposition if you have a parent. There's not only a predisposition from a, like a genetic standpoint, but there's also um, something has to trigger that predisposition. So some stressor, some major thing, um, some during a certain period in, uh, in life. So I, I think if people are taking care of themselves, they might reduce their risk a little bit. Now there's only so much you can control there, but the risk is, the hereditary risk is not super high. Um, so I think the best thing that one can do is, in, is make sure they're taking care of themselves, make sure their mental health is as good as they can make it um, through kind of therapy and skills and, and, and self-care and that sort of thing. All right, another question. Are there any tests or machines that can be used to see what causes an individual to have a severe bad memory? Um, it, memory testing is a neuropsychological thing. So there are neuropsychologists who can put people through a standard battery of tests to understand their, uh, their memory capabilities, basically. That doesn't necessarily say what the cause is, but it can track where the problems are. So there are different types of memory, different areas of memory. I'm not a neuropsychologist, so I'm not representing this super well. Um, but for example, you may have memory in terms of, you know, how well you can remember things in the short term. So remember like a string of numbers, for example, or memorize your grocery list. And then there's more long-term bad memory, like not remembering significant events or things like that. So the, just those are just two examples, but there are many different types of memory, memory and areas of memory and different parts of the brain are responsible for this. So if that can be teased out through some neuropsychological testing to find out where someone's memory deficits are, then that can kind of lead to certain parts of the brain. Um, the only, you know, looking at causes of it, if it's just a normal functioning brain, no, we don't really have ways of measuring what the memory challenges might be. Um, if it's a brain that has an injury or tumor or TBI or something like that, then we kind of have a better understanding. And some of those things, like a tumor, yes, it can show up on scans or a stroke can show up on scans. Um, TBI, not necessarily. That's more based on someone's history and what happened to them. So not really any tests or machines, um, any like physical machine tests, um, but there are some uh, kind of performance tests that can determine um, where someone's challenges are. Although that doesn't always necessarily, that doesn't necessarily point to um, what causes specifically someone's memory challenges. 
And, you know, when someone has memory challenges, there are ways to to compensate. Uh, sometimes that's things like putting stuff in their phone. Sometimes it's things like memory tricks to help jog their memory and things like that. So again, not a neuropsychologist, so not the, not the best person to represent that that very, you know, well-developed area of, of, of treatment. Um, but there are things that someone can do. All right, two more questions. Uh, what are some of the resources on campus that can help with mental health problems? Oh, great question. So uh, within ECU campus, we do have the ECU Counseling Center. Um, and if you just Google ECU Counseling Center, you'll come up with it. Um, they uh, are pretty packed with patients from my understanding, but you can get on a wait list. We also have, uh, and you'll see this on the, their website, because we're a bit overwhelmed, there is an online uh, therapy option that ECU is, and all this is paid for by student fees. So you don't incur any charges for this. Um, there's an online uh, therapy provider that you can do um, virtual therapy with someone. Now with a real human, <laughs> but the therapy is like through your phone or computer and things like that. So that's to kind of make up for the fact that the counseling center is pretty packed. The psychology department carries a small caseload through the PASS clinic. Um, so if you Google ECU PASS, P-A-S-S clinic, you'll find it. Uh, and that is our training clinic for the program that I teach in, um, where we train uh, health psychologists. So these are graduate students doing most of the treatment and they're supervised by us. So, you know, we don't have anywhere near the volume of the counseling center um, and we do have a small fee. Uh, but for students, it's a it's a we, we reduce that fee as much as we possibly can. Um, so it's much lower than even a, a copay. But again, the counseling center is free and the past clinic, you know, Everywhere has a waiting list, but the past clinic waiting list just depends on um, how many students we have in the clinic that semester and how many are actively taking patients. That should start up again in the fall. We won't be doing much there in the summer, but in the fall it'll be starting up. Great questions. Um, and you know, the counseling center and stu also student services um, should be able to hook you up with community providers if that's more preferential to you. Now there's going to be a cost for that. It might be on your insurance or your parents' insurance, but um, there, there are other options there as well. Um, it's not easy to find mental health treatment, um, unfortunately, because things are full, but you know, be persistent uh, if you are looking for mental health treatment. Be persistent. Um, be persistent with your friends and family members who are seeking mental health treatment. They may not find someone easily, and they may not find someone that feels like the right fit for them easily. Um, but keep going, it's worth doing, it's helpful. Um, it There's a good science behind it to show that it's effective. So keep going, you'll get there, you'll find it, you'll improve. Um, I wish it wasn't so difficult. That's why I'm in a training program that creates mental health care providers because there's such a need for them uh, in the community. Last question. What exactly is relationship anxiety? Is it considered to be abnormal or can it be treated helped? Um, so relationship anxiety, I'm not sure what the question is referring to here because that's not a diagnosis or really like a, a, a word that, I, that we use within psychology. The closest thing I can understand that is um, social anxiety. Um, maybe it's very specific to um, romantic relationships where someone experiences a lot of anxiety and fear and, and fear of evaluation and lack of trust and things like that in a relationship. Um, and yes, those things can be helped. I don't know if I can say, you know, I hate the title abnormal psychology. It's just the title we've used like forever. Um, there's some thoughts by the American Psychological Association that we should change that. And I kind of agree. Um, so is it abnormal? I mean, abnormal is by your own definition. If it's something that, <laughs> if it's something that is to an extreme that causes you problems, then I'd say, yeah, it's, it's, it's worthy of treatment. It's worthy. It's, it's not just kind of the normal ups and downs of being a human. It's something that is a little extreme and probably isn't going to go away unless, um, there's some effort made to, uh, to make it go away, you know, to learn different ways of, of being. Um, so when it comes to things like social anxiety, or in this case, I, hopefully I'm talking about the relationship anxiety that, that this person asked the question about, um, it is about engaging in relationships and examining and, and, you know, coming to learn that there's a lot of good that can come out of those, even if they're scary. Um, again, if that's their life goal, if someone's life goal is not to be in, is to not be in a relationship, then that's okay. Um, 
we don't need to we don't need to say that everyone needs to be in a relationship but if someone is anxious about it wants a relationship but experiences so much anxiety when pursuing it or when in it um that it causes problems for them and for the relationship then yeah that's something that can be worked on and you would use exposure based things you would you know a therapist would examine you know what what kind of expectations do you have for a relationship what what things are you most concerned or anxious about to kind of help understand how realistic those concerns are and what kind of things might happen because some of it is realistic like pursuing relationships can make us encounter rejection it can make us encounter a lot of very negative feelings right when they don't work out but a lot of relationships don't work out and so you know pursuing relationships overall is healthy and helpful and, and good for us but we're going to experience disappointment and rejection and, and lots of negative things in the in the pursuit of that so learning how to cope with those things when they come up learning what that means to the person you know being rejected um, in a romantic sense doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person who is unwelcome of love and will never be loved but a lot of times people have those very catastrophic and extreme thoughts that come up um, when they experience rejection and that's just fine that's just our brain telling us this was a bad idea and we should never do it again going back to exposure when we go into a place that's scary and something bad happens our brain says this is a bad idea and we should never do this again um, but you know in order to pursue our life goals and to live the life we want to live sometimes we got to push through some of that and so that's where relationship anxiety and social anxiety it's important to be able to push through some of those things to get those rewards that we really want the rewards we really expect to happen over time and to learn ways to um buffer the negative effects of bad experiences because bad experiences are going to happen humans experience bad stuff all the time um, learning to have a little more of a buffer, a little more of a resilience to that um, is something that someone can get through through therapy and through treatment. So I would say yes to, to this question. You know, there's it, it's something that can be treated or helped. I don't care if we categorize it as abnormal or not. If it's self-defined as problematic for a person, then it's something that's 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 worthy of change, and it can definitely be helped and changed. Well, thanks for sticking around for me. I thought this was going to be a short one because I only had like an, one row of tabs open <laughs> of these various anonymous questions, but it turned out to be an hour again. So thanks for spending this time with me. Thanks for listening to this. Um, if you have questions and you're in my class, feel free to email me. If not, um, there's the Do Healthy, Be Healthy website. You can you know throw down some, some questions there and I'll, I'll do my best to to answer them so thanks for spending this time with me i hope you enjoyed this and we'll have at least one more round of anonymous questions this summer that i also hope that you will enjoy take care